You're listening to the Effective Statistician Podcast, a weekly podcast with Alexander Schacht and Benjamin Pieske, designed to help you reach your potential, lead great science, and serve patients without becoming overwhelmed by work. Today, I talk about one of my favorite topics and with one of my favorite guests, Jenny Davenport, and we talk about the five whys of launch and life cycle. And now some music. Jenny and I are running the launch and life cycle signal for a couple of years and it's a really, really nice special interest group that is organized by PSI and SPI and we have a lot of really experienced people in this medical affairs launch area that help across a lot of different big companies. If you're interested in joining, then just reach out to Jenny or myself on LinkedIn, or you can also find our connections on the blog for this episode. We have a lot of good discussions within this group where we exchange about best practices, our common challenges, look for uh, solutions that work or don't work and what we can improve and really to improve the impact that statisticians can have in this area. This episode is really, really valuable, not just for people that are in the launch and life cycle area, but especially also people in the other areas so that they can understand what actually is needed in this space because that definitely affects also the phase two and phase three work. And I already mentioned PSI. I'm producing this podcast in association with PSI, a community dedicated to leading and promoting use of statistics within the healthcare industry for the benefit of patients. This year we will again have a PSI conference, of course, and this year it is in the amazing city of Amsterdam in June. And as this podcast episode goes live, you should be able to actually now register or very soon register for this conference. And I can urge you to do so pretty quickly. I'm pretty sure the conference will be sold out uh, pretty fast and probably before the end of the early bird deadline. Uh, there were so many session proposals and abstract proposals that only a very few of them could be accommodated in. So you can pretty, be pretty sure that the conference will be packed with high quality speakers, great sessions, and like usual, a lot of really, really good social events. If you want to learn more about that, visit the PSI website at psiweb.org to learn more about this conference and about all the other PSI activities. And if you register for this conference, you automatically become a PSI member. You should become one anyway. So just as, as a short version, it's really worth the money. So have a check there and see you at the conference, hopefully. Now enjoy this episode. Welcome to another episode of the Effective Statistician. And I'm super happy to speak again 
with Jenny about launch and life cycle. The topic that is so close to my heart. If you haven't heard anything about Jenny, I very much recommend you scroll down a couple of different episodes. We recorded already a couple of different episodes together. Welcome Jenny again to the show. Thank you so much for having me, Alexander. It's good to be back. Yes, it's good to be back. And today we are talking about a very, very important topic that is the reason of our existence, statisticians in the medical affairs part and the post-regulatory approval part. And especially in terms of, you know, also outside of the HDA area, the kind of all the different topics that address the payer needs. And we talk about five reasons, five whys of why we as statisticians need to be in this space and also why the spaces actually exist in and why we still do research in this area. So let's dive directly into it. What's the first why of the five? Because not all stakeholders' questions will be addressed with the health authority package or the label. That is so, so true. The health authority, you know, the FDA, the EMA, looks for very, very specific questions. They look into quality, they look into safety, they look into efficacy. And here, very often, this is, you know, you just need to show that you're effective. You just need to show that your benefit risk profile looks positive. What are typical questions that are not addressed through that? That's a really good question, Alexander. I think one of the things to note is that with these other stakeholders, they're going to want to look beyond that. And they're looking at, you know, sometimes it's, it's more about what treatment will work best for my patient. If you're talking about clinical practice, you know, these are the kinds of patients that I have. Are they represented in the trial population? Sometimes they are, sometimes they are not. They tend to have, you know, in clinical practice, for example, patients tend to have more comorbidities than they did in the clinical trials. Sometimes they have more severe disease. Sometimes they have less severe disease. And so, you know, it's not clear necessarily to the clinicians whether the new treatment will work well for their patient population. It's also true that, you know, there are practical limits to the number of patients that you studied in your health authority registration program. And so that safety profile may not be enough to establish confidence that we know everything we need to know about the risk benefit of the drug. And so, you know, these are questions that come up often. There's also questions about dosing in practice because everything goes perfectly well in a clinical trial where patients are followed up, you know, on a very regular basis. And in clinical practice with uh, less frequent follow-up and less motivation on all sides for follow-up, dosing may not occur with the same level of compliance that it does in a clinical trial. And so there may be implications there in terms of outcomes, in terms of prognosis that, that people need to understand. Yep, completely agree. These are very, very valid points. And these brings us directly to the next why. Our products exist in, you know, beyond these kind of laboratory settings, 
in complex and also in evolving markets. What do you think about these things? What, what does that mean for you? A couple of things. Uh, I think we tend to be working in markets with lots and lots of competition. Gone are the days in the portfolio where you are first to market with nothing on the horizon from any competitor. Now, of course, there are some exceptions in ultra rare diseases where not everybody is going to pursue those indications. But for the most part, uh, new medicines are launched with lots and lots of competition. And uh, you may or may not have included those competitors in your pivotal trial program in terms of actually including them as a comparator or in terms of endpoints that would allow you to differentiate from the competitor when looking at, for example, a network meta-analysis. So people are going to have questions about why should I switch, you know, not just clinician, and they'll have plenty, but also the patients of, you know, hey, I, I don't know what, what's in it for me to change to this new drug that might be more expensive. Yeah, and also other things might change. You know, guidelines might change. Standard of care might change. The additional, you know, treatments that are given together with your treatment might change. Maybe there's, you know, maybe now people want to look into longer term data, much longer than you have in your phase three studies. So there's a lot of things that evolve over time. Maybe there's a, you know, there's a new competitor coming up that has a very, very different safety profile. And uh, there is, or maybe there's a competitor that has a similar method of action and they now have a certain safety signal. And people will ask, if this treatment has it, do you have it as well? Or does your treatment have it as well? They may just assume. Yeah. I think that's, that again is not an unreasonable assumption and, and potentially something to be investigated because we are interested in, you know, the scientific basis of how our products work and how they will serve patients in the market. In terms of differentiation, what you just mentioned, that is a very, very important point and brings us to point number three. Very often companies, several companies will work on a similar method of action. Yeah, because they all kind of start from the basic science. They kind of develop along the same timelines for the same regulatory guidelines in the same markets. And very often companies, you know, different companies launch with a similar mode of action. Yeah, just with different biologics or different small molecules over the same time span. Yeah, so maybe you're... Maybe you're lucky and you're the first one, but most likely you will not be lucky and the first one. So what does that pose additional challenges for medical affairs? You know, I think optimistically people hope that the halo of the first one will carry over to their product. That may or may not be true, but certainly depending on whether you can differentiate at all from those other products, you may not be able to get much, much traction in the marketplace. So your drug may not actually benefit patients. It may be that that first drug gets it. Uh, also, if you cannot differentiate, HTA bodies may say that your drug does not add additional benefit over what is already there. 
So you've already kind of lost before you get to patients. And, and this is really important and something that, that people need to consider when they choose to pursue a target and when they choose to pursue a particular med- uh, mechanism is, can they be fast enough to, to answer people's questions in the context that they're going to be launching about the value that their product brings and the benefit that their product brings to patients? Yeah, and here it is really important to understand that it doesn't matter what you think about your product. It even doesn't matter what, you know, objectively, you know, certain papers or publications will say about your product. What really matters is what is the understanding, the perception of the prescribing physicians and or the patients that are involved. And the interaction here is really, really crucial. And that is exactly the part that medical affairs plays in. And so it's our goal to make sure that this perception meets reality. Yeah. And that we provide the right evidence at the right time in the right format for these stakeholders. We have talked about publications and their importance on the podcast previously. And it's not just the actual publication itself that is published in a peer-reviewed scientific journal that explains your data, but it's then the ability of people to discuss that paper, whether it's company personnel talking to physicians or to patients, or, or whether it's people discovering those publications on their own. But this is what fuels those conversations to have the scientific debate about your products and to clarify any misunderstandings. And so this kind of feeds the next, the next machine. Yeah. Yeah. Completely agreed. Publications are just the starting point of the overall communication channel. You then have the medical field force, the medical scientific liaisons that speak with us. You have the cascade of information that runs through the promotional channels. You have the evolving digital channels, which I think are especially interesting for us statisticians, not only because, you know, they come with lots of statistics in terms of, you know, how good, you know, emails are looked into, how good kind of webinars are taken into account, all these kind of, you know, more business analytics part, but also because that is very often very centralized organized and therefore with our limited number of people that we usually have, we can have big influence in this area and that's a great leverage effect. So yes, there is a lot to do beyond the publications. Now you already mentioned a a little bit about the force why. People want to understand how to best select and appropriately use different treatment options. Can you speak a little bit to this why? Sure. So I think, again, this is a little bit different question than the health authorities have been asking. This question is actually more about prediction, right? In the sense, it can be which treatment is going to bring me the best outcome. This is not a question that we are typically addressing with the health authorities. And, and some of it is because we haven't explored all the potential treatments. We've explored the ones that will get us health authority approval 
or get us payer approval. So now when you want to take a given patient and their set of comorbidities and their disease status and say, hey, will this treatment work well for me? We don't often have all the right data, but some data does exist. And some of these questions can be addressed by exploring the pivotal trial data further. And some of this data, some of this evidence rather, can be generated from real world data. But some of it is about just understanding how much we can generalize from different data sources to individual patients. But I would say that prediction science in this context has been fairly limited to date. But yeah. it doesn't mean that people shouldn't be asking questions. I think there are a lot of opportunities in the future, especially with the ever-growing digitalization of medicine, especially, for example, in areas like diabetes, oncology, and a couple of other areas where the care becomes more and more integrated and more and more digital. There we have a lot of different options. And it's not just about, you know, when do you start a treatment, but also how do you modify a treatment? How do you individualize treatments? Yeah, just think about diabetes, adjusting doses, adding additional medications, switching to a new treatment class, all these kind of different things. Yeah, a couple of different companies in this field offer various medications. Yeah, not just one treatment. And then, of course, it's a question of when do you start with this treatment? When do you start with that treatment? When do you switch from one treatment to the next? How do you switch from one treatment to the next? Do you augment? Do you, you know, there's thousands of different questions in that space. Do you combine? And as, yeah, do you combine? Yeah. Stephen Zen at the 2022 workshop, regulatory workshop in Basel mentioned that Clinical studies are primarily there to compare two treatments. They were not designed to predict treatments or treatment outcomes. And so taking this into account, we need to look into a lot of different things. But you did bring up some interesting points that are also relevant. So this is not about this is not exclusively about matching up a patient to their perfect treatment because there frankly is not a lot of evidence um, and not a lot of uh, not a lot of ability for us to do that yet there's a lot of different mechanisms of disease that work particularly outside of oncology but there are some interesting options um, that affect how you deliver the treatment that can be customized in terms of how you modify a patient's dosing pattern based on their response, based on their adverse event reactions um, that matter and that can be explored further um, and lead to a better overall outcome for the patient. So I thought that was interesting that you brought that up. Yeah, I, for example, once had a compound that I was working on where there were injection site reactions. And during the regulatory review, that was not an issue at all. Well, yeah, we have that. Yeah. 
if it isn't of particular concern, okay, job done. Yeah. It wasn't really a big discussion within the email. It was when the treatment hit the you know, clinical practice. First, because it really was painful. Yeah. And of course, also the competition picked up on that. And now the question was, okay, how can we mitigate this? Where do you inject? How do you inject? Yeah. Do you very, very practical things like if you take it out of the refrigerator? Yeah. How long do you wait until you inject it? Yeah. Well, does that have an impact? How fast do you inject it? All these kind of little things that we generally don't capture in clinical trials, but that make, can make a huge difference in the uh, medical affairs space, because then you have a mitigation strategy and you can say, okay, do these kind of things. Yeah. Set the expectations. There might be uh, injections, right? Reactions, but here are a couple of tips how you can minimize that. And this is really kind of where, you know, medical affairs can play a big role. Absolutely. 100%, which brings us to the fifth why. Uh, people want to achieve optimal outcomes for their patients. And I really appreciate that you brought up the fact that sometimes a bit of additional communication, a bit of additional evidence is needed to help physicians manage their patient's experience on the medicine. Sometimes there are some concomitant medicines that are deeply entrenched into the practice of medicine and conflict directly with the new with the new medicine. And if you administer that old medicine out of habit when a patient is having an adverse reaction, you can cause some real damage. And so being very clear, uh, ideally you catch this at the labeling stage, but I've certainly witnessed some, some, some situations where they have not, and they've had to go back and update the label and explain uh, what has happened or put out an additional safety communication. Hey, do not administer this other treatment when your when your patient is on new medicine X. Uh, I think the the other thing to remember is is also that um, just because physicians have a lot of experience with a particular treatment delivery system or a particular mechanism of action doesn't mean that they wouldn't benefit from some some reminders. <laughs> yes, <laughs> they're very good at what they do, but sometimes you know something goes awry. And so making sure that that is communicated about here's the concomitant medications that you need to give to prevent severe treatment injection, you know, injection site reactions or infusion related reactions. Here's what we observed in our trials about the optimal mix with this particular drug and how that works and what seemed to prevent anaphylaxis from occurring, for example. And of course, you know, preventing safety events is critically important in clinical practice and maybe not something that people love to emphasize when they're talking about efficacy, but it is, of course, critical to achieving optimal outcomes for patients because they will not stay on your drug. They can't tolerate it. Yeah. And what is optimal might actually change over time. Yeah. So at the time you design your phase three study, optimal might be a certain threshold that you reach. One year after launch, it might be something different. Yeah. Maybe there's a new endpoint that people are interested in. Maybe there's a, you know, 
you're not only want to have, be good on, in terms of the clinical response, you also want to, you know, have a certain duration of response. You want to have reach certain, um, targets in terms of your quality of life. Maybe the, you know, the level of response is now different because there's so many new different treatment options that all, you know, help achieve patients getting to higher levels of response. Yeah. Absolutely. And there's countless examples uh, in different therapeutic areas of responses changing over time. And of course, your health authority approval might be over a very short term duration. And then over two years, maybe patients lose response, maybe short, or maybe patients that were slow to respond are now responding beautifully. And really being able to understand how the response rate is changing over time and what is driving that is something that medical affairs can do very well and can be a real uh, benefit to clinical practice and to patients to provide that information. Thanks so much. So we have been talking about five reasons of why there's medical affairs and there are statisticians in medical affairs or more generally in the launch and life cycle area. The first is because not all our stakeholder questions and here thinking really beyond the regulatory questions will be addressed with a regulatory package. The second is our products don't exist, you know, in this laboratory clinical trial setting, but in a complex and especially in a dynamic market, things are changing. And especially when there's lots of new treatments coming in, that's the third why. The market is changing really, really fast. Guidelines are changing. Endpoints are changing. Communications are changing. All these kind of different things. And therefore, just relying on a package, a data package that was once done at a certain time point will not help you. The fourth point is people want to understand how to best select and properly use the different treatment options that they have. So here we talked about predicting who will benefit most from which treatment regimen. And that can be as complex as you want it to be, probably as good as your data can be. And here, of course, it's also about getting additional data. We talked about digitalization and that that can lead to completely different data sets that we are not even yet thinking about in lots of disease areas. And lastly, because patients and physicians want to achieve optimal outcomes for their patients. It's not just, oh, I get a better outcome with this than with another treatment. How do I get to the best one, to the optimal one over time? And that also changes. Jenny, any final points from your side? No, I think, I think that's a great start. And I would just really encourage people to think about the needs of different stakeholders beyond health authorities, because the finish line in drug development isn't health authority approval. It's getting the new medicines to patients in clinical practice to help them benefit and thrive. There's one other thing that I would like to cover, and that is the call that we have put together. Jenny and myself have been in a recording studio earlier this year, 
here in the middle of Germany and re-recorded together a course that is specifically designed for statisticians in this specific field of launch and life cycle. This course covers what does actually success look like? How do you get to this success? What are all the different aspects that you need to take into account? It gives lots of guidance from our learning of the launch and life cycle, a special interest group. So this is not just about Jenny and Alexander's experience. This is also, you know, the based on the more cumulative experience within the launch and life cycle SIG. This program or this course has two different parts. One is we have these videos that you can learn and watch at your own speed. But we'll also have in-person, well, virtual setups where we talk about the content, where we exchange about the different challenges, where there will be opportunities to ask questions and work together and to learn together to improve our impact in this field. And I think that's a wonderful thing that's being offered because, you know, there are so many online classes you can take, but until you get to ask questions in a live setting about what's what's tricky for you or what's bothering you or what your latest challenge is, um, you know, those are the interactions that are going to accelerate your progress. And so I'm so excited that we're offering that. Yeah. And by the way, if you want to have a sneak preview in this, we will make the first video of the course public. Yeah, so you can have a look into this and get some kind of glance of how this actually looks like. If you have further questions about this, don't hesitate to reach out to Jenny or myself via LinkedIn, you know, or via email and ask questions whether this is the right thing for you. One other topic, maybe you just in one enroll individually, but maybe you have a bigger group. And you have, you know, maybe 10, 20, or maybe just five people who want to be in there. Have a chat with Jenny or myself. Maybe we can do something that is more targeted towards yourself and help your group and maybe set up something specifically designed for your team. Thanks so much, Jenny. That was an awesome further episode. And I'm pretty sure this will not be the last one. Thank you again, Alex. It's good to see you. The show was created in association with PSI. Thanks to Rain and her team at VVS who helped with the show in the background. And thank you for listening. Reach your potential, lead great science, and serve patients. Just be an effective statistician. 